Prologue to Green Mansions. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Green Mansions A Romance of the Tropical Forest by W. H. Hudson. Prologue. It is a cause of very great regret to me that this task has taken so much longer a time than I had expected for its completion. It is now many months, over a year, in fact, since I wrote to Georgetown announcing my intention of publishing, in a very few months, the whole truth about Mr. Abel. Hardly less could have been looked for from his nearest friend, and I had hoped that the discussion in the newspapers would have ceased, at all events, until the appearance of the promised book. It has not been so, and at this distance from Guiana I was not aware of how much conjectural matter was being printed week by week in the local press, some of which must have been painful reading to Mr. Abel's friends. A darkened chamber, the existence of which had never been suspected in that familiar house in Main Street, furnished only with an ebony stand on which stood a cinerary urn, its surface ornamented with flower and leaf and thorn and winding through it all the figure of a serpent, an inscription, too, of seven short words, which no one could understand or rightly interpret, and finally the disposal of the mysterious ashes. That was all there was relating to an untold chapter in a man's life for imagination to work on. Let us hope that now, at last, the romance weaving will come to an end. It was, however, but natural that the keenest curiosity should have been excited, not only because of that peculiar and indescribable charm of the man, which all recognized and which won all hearts, but also because of that hidden chapter, that sojourn in the desert, about which he preserved silence. It was felt in a vague way by his intimates that he had met with unusual experiences which had profoundly affected him and changed the course of his life. To me alone was the truth known and I must now tell, briefly as possible, how my great friendship and close intimacy with him came about. When, in 1887, I arrived in Georgetown to take up an appointment in a public office, I found Mr. Abel an old resident there, a man of means and a favorite in society. Yet he was an alien, a Venezuelan, one of that turbulent people on our border whom the colonists have always looked on as their natural enemies. The story told to me was that, about twelve years before that time, he had arrived at Georgetown from some remote district in the interior, that he had journeyed alone on foot across half the continent to the coast, and had first appeared among them a young stranger, penniless, in rags, wasted almost to a skeleton by fever and misery of all kinds, his face blackened by long exposure to sun and wind. Friendless but with little English, it was a hard struggle for him to live, but he managed, somehow, and eventually letters from Caracas informed him that a considerable property of which he had been deprived was once more his own, and he was also invited to return to his country to take his part in the government of the Republic. But Mr. Abel, though young, had already outlived political passions and aspirations, and apparently even the love of his country. 
At all events he elected to stay where he was. His enemies, he would say smilingly, were his best friends. And one of the first uses he made of his fortune was to buy that house in Main Street, which was afterwards like a home to me. I must state here that my friend's full name was Abel Guevas de Argonzola, but in his early days in Georgetown he was called by his Christian name only, and later he wished to be known simply as Mr. Abel. I had no sooner made his acquaintance than I ceased to wonder at the esteem and even affection with which he, a Venezuelan, was regarded in this British colony. All knew and liked him, and the reason of it was the personal charm of the man, his kindly disposition, his manner with women, which pleased them and excited no man's jealousy, not even the old hot-tempered planters, with a very young and pretty and light-headed wife. His love of little children, of all wild creatures, of nature, and whatsoever was furthest removed from the common material interests and concerns of a purely commercial community. The things which excited other men—politics, sport, and the price of crystals—were outside of his thoughts, and when men had done with them for a season, when like the tempest they had blown their fill in office and club-room and house, and wanted a change, it was a relief to turn to Mr. Abel and get him to discourse of his world, the world of nature and the spirit. It was all felt a good thing to have a Mr. Abel in Georgetown. That it was indeed good for me I quickly discovered. I had certainly not expected to meet in such a place with any person to share my tastes. That love of poetry which has been the chief passion and delight of my life, but such a one I had found in Mr. Abel. It surprised me that he, suckled on the literature of Spain, and a reader of only ten or twelve years of English literature, possessed a knowledge of our modern poetry as intimate as my own, and a love of it equally great. This feeling brought us together, and made us too, the nervous, olive-skinned Hispano-American of the tropics, and the phlegmatic blue-eyed Saxon of the cold north, one in spirit, and more than brothers. Many were the daylight hours we spent together, and tired the sun with talking. Many, past counting, the precious evenings in that restful house of his where I was an almost daily guest. I had not looked for such happiness, nor, he often said, had he. A result of this intimacy was that the vague idea concerning his hidden past, that some unusual experience had profoundly affected him, and perhaps changed the whole course of his life, did not diminish, but on the contrary became accentuated, and was often in my mind. The change in him was almost painful to witness whenever our wandering talk touched on the subject of the Aborigines, and of the knowledge he had acquired of their character and languages when living or travelling among them. All that made his conversation most engaging, the lively curious mind, the wit, the gaiety of spirit, tinged with a tender melancholy appeared to fade out of it, even the expression of his face would change, becoming hard and set, and he would deal you out facts in a dry mechanical way, as if reading them in a book. It grieved me to note this, but I dropped no hint of such a feeling, and would never have spoken about it but for a quarrel which came at last to make the one brief solitary break in that close friendship of years. I got into a bad state of health 
and Abel was not only much concerned about it, but annoyed, as if I had not treated him well by being ill, and he would even say that I could get well if I wished to. I did not take this seriously, but one morning, when calling to see me at the office, he attacked me in a way that made me downright angry with him. He told me that indolence and the use of stimulants was the cause of my bad health. He spoke in a mocking way, with a presence of not quite meaning it, but the feeling could not be wholly disguised. Stung by his reproaches, I blurted out that he had no right to talk to me, even in fun, in such a way. Yes, he said, getting serious, he had the best right, that of our friendship. He would be no true friend if he kept his peace about such a matter. Then, in my haste, I retorted that to me the friendship between us did not seem so perfect and complete as it did to him. One condition of friendship is that the partners in it should be known to each other. He had had my whole life and mind open to him, to read it as in a book. His life was a closed and clasped volume to me. His face darkened, and after a few moments' silent reflection he got up and left me with a cold good-bye, and without that hand-grasp which had been customary between us. After his departure I had the feeling that a great loss, a great calamity, had befallen me, but I was still smarting at his too candid criticism, all the more because in my heart I acknowledged its truth. And that night, lying awake, I repented of the cruel retort I had made, and resolved to ask his forgiveness and leave it to him to determine the question of our future relations. But he was beforehand with me and with the morning came a letter begging my forgiveness, and asking me to go that evening to dine with him. We were alone, and during dinner and afterwards, when we sat smoking and sipping black coffee in the veranda, we were unusually quiet, even to gravity, which caused the two white-clad servants that waited on us, the brown-faced, subtle-eyed old Hindu butler, and an almost blue-black young Guianan negro, to direct many furtive glances at their master's face. They were accustomed to see him in a more genial mood when he had a friend to dine. To me the change in his manner was not surprising. From the moment of seeing him I had divined that he had determined to open the shut and clasped volume of which I had spoken, that the time had now come for him to speak. End of the Prologue